Okay, we're continuing on with our reading through Revelation. I'm starting at chapter 4, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they will be created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, 
And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you, Jenny, and good morning, everyone. It's exciting that we continue in our church-wide series in the Great Apocalypse, the unveiling of the book of Revelation. Let me lead us briefly in prayer, and then we'll get struck in, uh, stuck into it. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you're the God who speaks, that you speak to us by your word, the Scriptures. Help us, Father, to listen carefully this morning, to pay attention, to set aside things that would distract us, uh, so that your word might uh, penetrate our hearts and our minds, and we might uh, be changed, challenged, corrected, to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the things I love most about being a follower of Jesus is that I live life the way I was designed to live. When something is doing what it's been designed to do, it is so much better than when it's doing something that it was not designed to do. Case in point, you could play cricket using a skateboard as a bat. You could. It'll kind of work. Not ideal, When the ball, that hard ball hits, it's going to kind of like vibrate like crazy and the weighting's not going to be able to give you a good swing. And with a grip tape, you're probably going to tear the the, the skin off your fingers after a while. But if you really wanted, you could. But of course, the best thing to use a skateboard for is, well, I don't know, maybe skating. The thing that it was designed to do. Its identity, its purpose, its direction in life, if you'll excuse me for personifying a skateboard, is to be ridden. And it works when it does what it is designed to do best. Uh, Now, if sport and skating aren't your thing, we'll choose any other thing that has a design. A knitting needle could be used to do acupuncture. (laughs) Not real comfortable, though, is it? Much better to use it to knit. You get the idea. Now, it is so easy for us to have our identity, our purpose, our goal, our direction in life determined by what's happening around us. In other words, it's easy for us to assume that what we are designed for is what we we see other people doing. Uh, His parents got married. They worked hard, had kids, bought a house, retired to a nice place down the coast, which means there's a great likelihood that he is likely to get married, work hard, have kids, buy a house and retire to a nice place down the coast. Her family studied at university and did postgrad studies and became surgeons, chief engineers and barristers, many of whom had few or no children, divorced in their mid-40s, became eccentric business consultants later in life. Therefore, it is quite likely that she will study hard, do postgrad, become a professional so-and-so, have few or no children, divorced in her mid-40s and become an eccentric business consultant later in life. If you never think about what your identity is, what your purpose in life is, it's likely that you will simply absorb it from whatever is happening around you. You'll just assume that's the way to go. But for Christians, the direction of our lives and our identity is no longer determined by what we see around us. 
by what we can experience in here and now. That does not shape our goal, our destiny, our identity. Jesus has raised us spiritually and has seated us with him at the right hand of God, Ephesians chapter 2. And it is what is happening there in the heavenly realms that provides us with our real identity, our real purpose, our real direction. And it is so much better and so much more satisfying than any identity and purpose we might get from this world. And as today, God draws back those curtains again to show us true reality, to let us see things as they really are, we get a powerful reminder, a wonderful reminder of what the purpose of our lives really is. And of why being in Christ means we are living the way we're designed to live. It's going to be a very reassuring part of God's word for us this morning. Now, by way of context, last week we saw Jesus gave his whole church a report card. Commending things we're doing well and warning us to repent of the things we're doing badly. Uh, one of the big ones was, of course, uh, the, the church does badly when they tolerate false teaching. Jesus says, no, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and you hate it too. Good on you. Test and approve things. That's a very important message for us. I think we don't do super well when it comes to discernment, and Jesus wants us to. But as Jesus' kingdom moves towards its inevitable success, there are ups and downs, ebbs and flows, things we do well, things we need to correct. Uh, but Jesus taught his church also to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is currently in heaven. And we should expect that that's actually going to be answered sooner or later. So when Jesus has finished giving his report card to John so that we can know how we're doing as a church, he then gives him a glimpse of what will eventually be the reality for all of his people. Jesus shows us what is happening in heaven right now so that we can know what must take place after this. Chapter 4 and verse 1 after this, writes John, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, that's of course Jesus, said, come up here, i.e. come up to the throne room in heaven. And I will show you what must take place after this. So Jesus is saying, hey John, check out what's going on in heaven so that you can know where eventually you and the rest of my true church will be. This is your destination so it will help you understand your purpose and your identity in the here and now. So that's what happens. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now notice that John does not give any explanation for what it means to be in the spirit. We know that all Christians can rightly be described as being in the Spirit. Uh, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Uh, there is this dodgy teaching that's gone around that says you become a Christian and later on you receive the Holy Spirit, get baptised, that's rubbish, it's heresy. Uh, all Christians are in the Spirit. But he mentions it here for the second time in Revelation, so it suggests there's something not normal going on for the way John's receiving the visions. But the fact he gives no further information communicates to us that it actually doesn't matter. Now, it might pique our curiosity, but it's an irrelevance. What John is concerned about is the content of the vision, not the mechanics. So what does he see? Well, 
In these verses, he's seeing a vision of God in the throne room of heaven. And the way God appears conveys a whole smattering of theological truths that when taken together, show that in the throne room of heaven, God is sovereign and settled. He is sovereign and settled. He is the sovereign ruler because he sits on the throne like a king, as a sovereign ruler does. He's the judge of the world who sent the flood in the days of Noah, which the rainbow could easily call to mind. In verse 5, we see there's thunder and lightning coming from the throne, which would remind any of the first century readers about Mount Sinai, where God spoke his authoritative word and gave his law to his people, as the sovereign does, and they trembled. In verse 8, he's surrounded by creatures who have six wings, just like he was when he commissioned Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 of Isaiah to go and preach his message of judgment to Israel. This smattering of Old Testament images, which happens all throughout the book of Revelation, uh, would easily call to mind for any first century reader that this is the God who rules over all things by his word and he executes judgment. He is the sovereign Lord. The thing I keep noticing about conspiracy theories, of which there are no end, is they always presuppose an amazing amount of power and amazing ability to coordinate between secret organisations You pull back the curtain, who's really in charge? It's God. God is in charge. He is the sovereign Lord. But there's also a picture of things being settled. And this is a really nice picture. A picture of peace and order and and of permanence. See, once upon a time, the great prophet Ezekiel was given a vision of God where God was in his dwelling place, just like he is here in chapter 4, We're told that he had the radiance of a rainbow, very similar to what we see here in Revelation, that he was surrounded by four living creatures, just as there are four living creatures surrounding him here, who were covered with wings and eyes, just like the creatures here in Revelation are covered with wings and eyes. But in Ezekiel's vision, God's throne also had a bunch of wheels underneath it. And in effect, God's throne drove up to the temple... God hopped in and drove away. Dead set. This is Ezekiel chapters 1 through the beginning of 11. You can read this. God's people had been so rebellious in the time of Ezekiel that he decided he could not put up with them any longer. God would not dwell with his people. So basically he gets his sweet, sweet ride and he hops in and he gets out of there. But here in Revelation, all those elements are there Except the wheels. The wheels are conspicuously absent because God is in his permanent dwelling place, the true heaven. So for those of us who have been raised up with Christ, for those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we know that he will never leave nor forsake us. There is a sense in which God's settledness is to be reassuring for us. No matter what happens to you in the here and now, If you're in Christ, then you are inseparably with God and he ain't going anywhere. I don't know what kind of week you've had this week. You might have been very far from God. Doesn't matter, he's not far from you. And he ain't going anywhere. And notice also in verse 6 that in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Again, from an Old Testament perspective, this is saying settled, peace. Uh, If you're an Old Testament Bible reader, you know that the sea is chaos and death. I mean, even right at the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep 
The deep water is the same word in Hebrew as for chaos, right? And when he comes to judge the world with Noah, what does he do? He floods the place. When the Egyptians, uh, the, the Israelites want to escape from the Egyptians, he's got to put the water aside and let them go through. And then he, how does he bring the judgment? He smashes them with the sea. Jonah falls off the thing. He's judged in the sea. That's why he's got to send a big fish to vomit him up. Jesus, how do you know he's the sovereign Lord that Peter goes, oh my gosh, you're my Lord. My... It's because he calms the wind and the waves. And Peter says, oh yeah, if you're really who you are, let me walk across the sea to, to come to you. Let, show me that you give me eternal life because the sea is chaos, is death. Here... The sea is of glass, it's hard, it ain't moving. We're told it's clear as crystal. He draws our attention to the fact that it's transparent. This, again, is a picture of God's settled, peaceful kingdom where his people surround him. To represent all the people of God who do surround him, we have 24 elders. Uh, Makes sense. 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, that's your Old Testament people. 12 apostles, they're elders, so they represent... It's the, the whole people of God, right, is represented by 24 elders. And just as Jesus promised that there would be great victory for those who persevere and who overcome, as we saw last week, so these elders are dressed in white and have crowns of gold on their heads. They sit on thrones, right? They've been given the crowns because, as is the case for all Christians... Christians persevere, no matter what. And uh, what are these elders doing in heaven? What are they doing when they're sitting around the throne of God? Well, to understand that, we actually first need to see what's happening with the rest of God's creatures. That's where the text goes. You see the elders are there in verse 4, but then the text goes to the creatures. Uh, Put simply, we're shown that all God's creatures know that they are designed to worship their creator. So from halfway through verse 6, in the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's funny. You guys know that I've, uh, a Jew, I'm Jewish, I have a Jewish upbringing. I, I, we used to sing this in Hebrew, Kadosh, 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 Adonai Elohenu, right? And I can't help but think that every time I say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, but they're right to, to sort of sing that, to chant that. This is what the, the, the creatures do. These four living creatures, of course, represent all of creation, even the best and most brilliant things. Uh, we speak of the world still as, as like the four corners of the earth. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a program called Four Corners because it has like stories from all over the world. Uh, so you've got four of them. They're like all the things in the world, but these, they're, they're all the really sort of amazing things. I mean, you've got the lion, right? Who's the king of the jungle? Ooh, ooh. And I know your answer is Jesus, but excluding that, of course, it's the lion, right? <laughs> He's got... The lion's got the pride, he's got the ferocity. There's the ox. Back in the day, you wanted to symbolise strength. Well, that's your best bet. Those things plough fields, right? You've got the face of a man, and that's human, by the way, not necessarily a male, but uh, is that a male? Who knows? Anyway, uh, but that's intelligence, right? Compared to all the other creatures, we kind of know what's going on. We name the other ones. You've got the eagle, swift, speed, flight. I love watching those nature docos where the eagle's flying so high and then it sort of does a dive and they tell you what speed it gets up to, which is ridiculous. And you feel sorry for the poor prey on the ground like the snake is going to get ripped to shreds by the claws or whatever. Or even worse, they pick it up 
And then they drop it, right? I thought, imagine you're that creature getting picked up by the eagles. Like, oh man, my life's over, but I have to put up with this going up and just waiting for the time it's going to drop me and I'm going to fall and die. Anyway, here's the best, the pinnacle of all the created stuff and the ultimate goal of, and the design of all the created stuff is to worship their creator. And the people of God know that to be the case because all creation is designed to worship its creator. So the people of God, represented by the elders, therefore delight to follow the lead of the best and brightest of all creation. So verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne who is forever and ever, which by the way is all the time because we're told they do it night and day. Whenever that happens, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. How do they do it? Well, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. As the skateboard is designed to be ridden, so the creation is designed to worship and glorify its creator. And humanity that really is the pinnacle of God's creation. Well, we're designed to worship and glorify God. And just like the skateboard works best when it's ridden rather than being used to whack a hard ball, so too humans work best when we do what we're designed to do, the worshipping and glorifying of God. Those who worship God now are those who will be fit for heaven when the time comes. To use the words of the Westminster Catechism, so I'm being a little bit un-Anglican this morning, the chief end of man, that is the goal, the chief goal of man is to, can someone finish it for me? The chief end of man is to and enjoy him forever, to glorify God. That's the purpose if you're one of God's creatures, especially a human. Our chief end is not to be rich and comfortable and successful. You'd be forgiven for thinking, because a lot of teaching gives you that impression. But that's not our chief end. Our chief end is not to follow our own hearts and dreams and define for ourselves what really is the best way to live, because only then will you be truly human. No, our hearts are full of sin for a start. For Christians, our final destiny, and therefore what we're concerned with here and now, is the glorifying and worshipping of God. Would people describe me? Would people describe you as someone who worships and glorifies God and seeks to enjoy him forever? I certainly hope so. Speaking of final destiny, the scene in heaven is only half done. The God who sits on the throne is sovereign, So what is his plan for this world and who can access his plan and put it into effect? Well, that's where we get in the next half of the vision from chapter 5, where the destiny is unsealed. Chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, i.e. it's completely sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. And yeah, fair enough, you'd be pretty disappointed. Come up here, I'll show you what must soon take place and here it is. Oh, no, I can't touch this. Oh, man, this might be the only chance I ever get. No. But, verse 5, 
Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The scroll is, of course, God's plan for all time, past, present, and future, because he's been introduced to us as the God who was and is and is to come. And it's a big plan because the writing's on both sides, so you'd be pretty excited to see it. But no one is worthy to approach this holy, sovereign God, let alone presume to be privy to his plans or put them into action. Really, it should be God alone who can know and execute his plans. Yet, as we saw in chapter 1, the risen Lord Jesus is the one upon whom all history centres and who determines all things. So he, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one in the bloodline of King David, that is the Messiah, is worthy to open the scroll and its seals, for he is the one who established the kingdom for this God. He established it in the first place by dying for our sins and rising to new life. And again, we're given a vision of Jesus with a smattering, or the punches if you like, of Old Testament imagery to convey truths about who he is. And I'm going to read it and sort of comment very quickly on the imagery as we go through. Uh, Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, which of course calls to mind the Passover lamb who dies in place of the firstborn, or maybe the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, standing at the centre of the throne. That is, he occupies the exact same position as God Almighty does. Hence, he's also encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns... uh, indicating complete, if it's seven, and horns indicate power, so this guy has complete power, and seven eyes. To see something is to know something, so he has complete knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is, of course, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent out because Jesus said he'll always be present with his people in the world by his spirit. That means he's with us here right now and knows and sees everything and has all power. He went, which is funny because he's already there, but this is imagery, right? He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders did something entirely blasphemous unless this lamb is the one and only true and living God. That is, they fell down before the lamb. Not only that, each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. This is the stuff that you use in the temple to praise and worship the true and living God. This is worship language. Wait a minute. They shouldn't be doing that unless he is the only God Almighty. Here, the people surrounding Jesus are worshipping exactly, worshipping him exactly as God Almighty alone is worshipped. That's because the lamb looking like it was slain is God Almighty. And notice how amazingly generous God is. Prayer, by definition, is asking God for stuff that he will give according to his will, if it pleases Apart from our whole lives, which belong to God anyway, the only thing we can be said to kind of offer him, I guess, is our prayers. And yet that's the very thing where he's offering something to us. So, Jesus, the Son of God, who is also God the Son, is worshipped in heaven just as God is 
And he alone has the worthiness and ability to put God's plans into effect. Jesus, as we saw back in chapter 1, determines the destiny of our world and therefore of us. I don't know if I think about Jesus enough like this as the Lord of history. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. He's the one who will determine the future of humanity. You know how occasionally you hear people with a really sort of progressive agenda claim that they'll be shown to be on the right side of history. I love that little that phrase, oh, it's going to turn out that we're on the right side of history. Well, there's actually only one way to be on the right side of history, that is to be a worshipper of Jesus Christ who controls all history, past, present, future. We might feel in our day and age, particularly with regards, I've got to say, to our sexual ethics, that there's considerable and strong and sometimes even persuasive opposition to the beliefs the Bible gives regarding, for example, marriage and sexual identity. If that Israel Folau debacle that's going on has shown us anything, it's that the times they are are changing. But there is no need to be anxious. In Jesus, we are only ever on the right side of history. With that, we come to the climax of this vision, the part where we see the ultimate reasons that Jesus is worshipped as the sovereign God, the ultimate reason that people exclaim, worthy is the Lamb. Having shown he can take the scroll and put all God's plans into effect, Jesus is then worshipped by everyone and everything in heaven. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, notice that to sing is to say, They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I said this two weeks ago, I'll say it again. If you're a Christian, level up, you're a priest. There ain't no special class of Christian priest. Every Christian is a priest. Now before we saw that God is worthy of all praise because he created all things. Now we see that Jesus is worthy of that same praise because he purchased us with his blood and made us into a kingdom and priests that we now are. God is worshipped as both creator and as redeemer. And in fact, you cannot truly worship God unless you worship him both as creator and redeemer. You can't have God without Jesus. And did you notice that of all the reasons you could give to worship Jesus, the reason given here is the thing that stands at the heart and centre of all Christian faith. That is that Jesus died to pay for our sin. He shed his blood to purchase us. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God himself gave his life in the person of Christ to purchase his people. He went to very great lengths to secure his kingdom. And if you sense that God's calling you to turn and join his kingdom, then do not reject his most costly offer. Turn, repent, start living as a worshipper of Jesus now. To end the section, we have the grand finale of heavenly worship from verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Very many, okay? They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Brothers and sisters, no matter what's happening in Jesus' church in the here and now, this is our destination. This is our goal. This is the reason we were created. And it is the reason Jesus has redeemed us from our sins by his blood. You remember when Jesus was having that conversation with Nicodemus in John 3? He said that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but if you reject him, you will not see life even. Or how in the same gospel, in chapter 10, he said, I've come to to give people life to the full. Have you ever wondered why when people turn and become followers of Jesus as adults, so often there's a dramatic change and they seem to be so much more contented than they previously were? Well, it's because it really is true that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the people that happens for are the people who ascribe to Jesus all glory and honour and power. People who recognise and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and who therefore live their whole lives in worship of him. So I need to ask you, just as much as I need to ask myself this morning, is it possible that my goal, my identity, my purpose has become a little clouded by the things of this world? Do I tend to forget that the direction in my life is towards that throne room in heaven and that indeed Jesus has already put me there spiritually so that I can sit kind of loosely to the things of this world? Whatever project I'm working on, whatever goal I'm currently trying to achieve, uh, do I and do you remember to spend time thinking how that goal or that project either helps me or distracts me from living as a worshipper of Jesus. I recently listened to a guy saying that for a long time his aim in life was pretty much to be married and bit by bit as he kept reading the scriptures and uh, draw his focus to the personal work of Jesus, he realised that actually wasn't the important thing. That was actually getting the way of his kind of identity and his kingdom direction. By way of implication... You might have noticed that there's this big scene with really God Almighty who's the Father, there's a big scene with the Son, and there's not a big scene afterwards with God the Holy Spirit. You think, this is a bit untrinitarian, isn't it? The Spirit is there. You'll notice he's the eyes of the Lamb who sees everything, the seven eyes who's also sent out into all the world. But we are worshippers of the Father and the Son and of God the Holy Spirit. With the Father and the Son, God the Holy Spirit is worshipped and glorified. It gets a bit confusing for people that there's not much ado made about the person of God the Holy Spirit as there is not here. People can think, well, you're sort of not particularly spiritual because you're not concentrating on, on who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does, but the Spirit of God is self-effacing. That's a beautiful thing about the character of God. That is, he he keeps saying, I'm pointing you away from myself and to Jesus and to the Father. Um, uh, Remember how when he was going to die, Jesus said, 
uh, to the Father, I'm going to glorify you. The Father says, you're going to glorify me. Again, you'd think, well, what about you know, glorifying the Spirit? Uh, but of course, none of that's made possible without the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Remember last week, Jesus spoke the letters to the churches, to the angel of the church and so-and-so write. But at the end of the letter, it kept saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. It's not like there's an absence of God, the Holy Spirit. It's, it's precisely because we worship God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit that we keep talking about the Father and the Son. That's just the way the Bible works. That's exactly what we see here. Don't be duped by the, the, the teaching in the churches that says, oh, you're truly spiritual if you're always going on about the Spirit. No, you're truly spiritual. If you keep being directed to the Word of God and you're always being pointed to worship and glorify Jesus like everything in heaven and, on earth is, and under the earth is doing, that doesn't make you a non-spirit worshipper. It makes you a very true spiritual worshipper doing what the Holy Spirit himself does. The second thing is, uh, I've probably pointed this out sometime before, if I haven't, I should. Uh, the idea that you come to church to worship uh, is a fairly unbiblical idea. The idea that congregational singing should be called worship is also unbiblical. Uh, it's kind of like saying, I come to church in order to breathe. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're 24-7 a worshipper of the Lord. And worshipping and serving go hand in hand. They're all throughout the Bible. To worship is almost to serve. And, and, and God wants to service other people. So if you're going to call your song leader a worship leader, you should go, the people that stack the chairs are also the worship leaders because they're serving us as well. However, however, there is a sense in which this scene that we've seen in the throne room of heaven is something that is given expression when God's people gather at church. When his people are gathered to hear him speak his gospel word, we, I don't know how else to say it, but are partaking in a greater sense of this heavenly spiritual reality. Don't believe me? Good, you shouldn't. Believe the word of God. Here's what it says in Hebrew chapter 12. Speaking to Christians, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. If you're a Christian, you're kind of, you've been brought here. You have come to, oh, there they are, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Anyone know the other word that the Bible translators use for assembly? Church. You've come to church. To the assembly, church, of the firstborn, was obviously Jesus, and whose names are written in heaven. Woohoo! You have come to God. There he is, the judge of all, the sovereign one in his settled throne room. To the spirits of righteous, the righteous made perfect. That's us. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better uh, word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for judgment, you see. But the word of the gospel cries out mercy and salvation. When we are gathered together, this activity takes place on a plane that no other human activity can. That's why church is something that Christians desire to do regularly. It's why you can't actually be a mature Christian and not be committed to church. Um, and also, I'm speaking just for a moment, if you're a visitor, please ignore what I'm about to say, uh, only to our regulars. It's why it's a great travesty that we have a culture of showing up to church late 
or being lax about the way we come in. I'm just going to square with you guys. I think it's so discouraging. When I come up here to sing in the morning and through the song, there's still people walking in. This activity that we are doing is where we are engaging with God in the throne room of heaven, which the Bible just showed us. We've just seen a wonderful picture. How can you show up late? Now, having said something very strong, I'm going to recoil for two reasons. Number one, you could be that person, and this is what I would hate, who's actually really good and consistent, and just today you've had some issue and you think, oh, you know, Ben's bashing me over there. <laughs> Do not listen if that's you, okay? I'm not talking to you. Visitors typically arrive much earlier than everyone else. How much better that we can be here to work? Are you more excited about showing up here than you are to work? If you wouldn't be late to work, you should not be late to work. Why have we got this cultural problem? Fix it. And don't fix it because I'm having a rant. Fix it because this is the reality that we partake in. Why should it be difficult to say, oh, I've got to toss up between, you know, sending my kid to sport on a Sunday and missing church or than doing this? That is not a Christian thought. You will prioritise. This is your future and your destiny. This is what your life's about. You want to know your true identity in Christ? You're going to prioritise this sort of thing. The best you're going to get in the here and now... I know the seats are crummy, you know, there's, we've got all sorts of issues, but this is it. Being with one another, encouraging one another under the word of God, those angels are there in joyful assembly as we are. Let me conclude our time together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb looking as if he's been slain, and yet is the Lord of all history and past, present and future. Father, we thank you that you've revealed to us our ultimate goal and our purpose, that as your creatures, life works best when we are worshippers of you and therefore worshippers of Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit. Father, it's so easy for us to get sidetracked, to look at the things of this world and get distracted from our ultimate goal and purpose and direction and identity. Father, thank you that your word brings us back. I pray you'd work powerfully in us by your Spirit to remind us that we are destined for this great seed in the throne room of heaven. And that's actually the only way to live and to make sense of life. And uh, Father, we thank you that we can meet freely as a church without fear of persecution. Father, we thank you that we can have some taste of what our future reality is. We gather together around uh, your word and therefore around your throne. And we thank you for these things and commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.